like that video. I know when to come up at the end of that video. So props to you, creative department. If you're ever watching this, I love you. <laughs> uh, hey, my name's Brett. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, New Life. Um, let's pray as we orient our, our hearts and our ears toward what God is speaking to us today through the scriptures. Um, and so, Lord... We come before you this morning, and um, I suppose we just recognize that we're coming before you. Help us show up this morning. It's not you showing up, it's, it's us. Spirit, awaken us to your presence here in this place. Speak to us. We come into this place with fractured lives, and tired lives, and um, perhaps angry lives, and we want to bring our whole selves to you right now, and have you um, speak balm, speak medicine, speak wholeness and healing into us, and over us, and around us, and so that's our prayer this morning, come speak because your servants are listening. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, just have a question for you this morning. It's the question that I thought we would just lead with this morning. Wouldn't Christianity be better without the church? get into it this morning. When I was 20 or 21, uh, I used to meet at Starbucks on Sunday mornings. Um, that, that's right. I used to meet at Starbucks on Sunday mornings with a friend of mine, uh, Ryan Smothers, and we were solving the world's problems like you do when you're in, in your early 20s, um, asking the big questions, the big questions. And uh, this was one that we were wrestling with. Wouldn't Christianity be better without this? Thing, the church. I grew up. I I grew up in church. I can, I can I can say this. I can say this. I grew up in church. My dad was in ministry growing up, and so for most of my life growing up, I was um, I experienced being in and around like the church building a lot. I was in the building three times a week at least. That's right. Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, Wednesday evenings. I knew the nooks and crannies, the sweetest spots for hide and seek in the shadows, in a lock-in. You know what I mean? I knew where you could... Fortified Hills. I knew... That's right. Fortified Hills is such a funny name. It's like this on a hill fortress kind of like... Anyway, um, at Fortified Hills, I knew where to find the ever-replenishing colony of ladybugs. That's right, there was one. If you were curious, it was in the corners of the frosted windows that were partially hidden behind the balcony stairs. Me and Brian, my brother Brian and Michael Roper, we would go get these bugs, and then we would take them up onto the balcony and throw them. <laughs> I don't know why we did that. Um, as I got older, um, my dad, uh, he went on staff at a, a larger church, and I got the full experience of being in a 
in a, like a big evangelical youth group. We had pizza parties. We went on mission trips. We sang songs. I sat through Bible studies. We didn't curse. We didn't smoke. We didn't watch the bad movies. We, we threw, once a year, it's something called Disciple Now. A lot of us, I didn't have any bad music, but a lot of my friends apparently threw away CDs. And through much of high school and my experience of church, um, I felt pretty good about myself because of my um, association with church. Um, but by the, by the time I got into like first year of college, I would say, I found myself at Starbucks with Ryan Smothers each week wondering out loud, what good is church anyway? Wouldn't, wouldn't Christianity be better without the church? Because I grew up, perhaps I'm like you, Perhaps you grew up in a similar tradition to me. I grew up um, in a tradition where I heard that my personal relationship with God was what was of most importance. It was the most vital thing. My reading the Bible, my prayer time, my, my times of worship, especially like my personal morality not watching those movies, throwing away those CDs, if I didn't have any. Um, that was what was most central to the faith. And as I got into college, I, my eyes kind of became open to like, well, I'm not sure what kind of difference this is making. And my church doesn't talk a lot about the poor. And that seems like a really big deal in scripture. And like fighting systems of injustice seems like it's built into the historical narrative of Israel's story. And like, man, what a... Have we been wasting, have I, 20-year-old Brett, have I been wasting my time with church all this time? Um, I was wrestling with these questions. Uh, you can go ahead and throw that slide up. I understood Christianity to be about getting saved. Me, getting saved. And getting saved was about me and Jesus. So Christianity was about me and Jesus, right? Is this resonating at all with with anybody. Yeah, 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 I think. And so church, church began feeling like this extra appendage, this like awkward growth, you know, like an arm coming out of your stomach or something. Like, what is this thing here for? Uh, it's like on the real thing. The real thing is me and Jesus. And the local church, at best, it's like this awkward, optional, kind of like Christian club over there somewhere. It, it, but it didn't really typically, it didn't feel like elemental. It didn't feel vital. It didn't feel um, that central. What's the deal with church is what we're asking this morning. Why do we do it? Um, that's what we're asking uh, this week. We're in a, a series here at the beginning of the year called First Things where we explore like the elementals, the essential vital things of the Christian faith, of following Jesus. And so last year, or last week, pardon me, last week we explored scripture. In a couple of weeks, we're going to explore prayer, scripture and prayer. I've never really questioned like those things, those things feel like, oh, I understand how those things are really important, but what good is the church anyway? <laughs> like getting together, gathering together in worship. Why does the local church exist? What, why does it, 
Let's just name it so we can address it. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Um, one of the earliest Christians, uh, early Christian leaders named Paul, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 3 if you've got a Bible with you. It'll be here, up here on the screen. He actually explicitly answers this question for us. It's nice. A lot of times we, answer, we ask questions that Scripture doesn't uh, address. Um, this one it does. Uh, he writes to the bustling city of Ephesus he, um, in the, towards the middle of this letter. He writes, chapter 3, verse 10, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Wow, that sounds that sounds important. <laughs> that sounds significant. That's the explicit answer that is given to us in, in Scripture, like why the church, the group, the ecclesia, the assembly, us together, not us individually, us together exists. We exist to put on, oh, sorry, it vanished. It's back. Yes. We exist to put on display, to make known, to make visible, to showcase the manifold wisdom of God. It seems like the wisdom of God is like a, uh, it's something like a brilliant musical. It's like Les Mis or Hamilton or Take Your Pay. If you haven't listened to Ham- Hamilton's Good. The hype is real, guys. <laughs> Hamilton represent in the house? Yes, yes, it's real. The hype is real. And the church is like the musicians and the performers through whom it was just like notes and words on a page, on a script somewhere. But suddenly through the musicians and the performers, suddenly it becomes visible. The wisdom of God is um, it's something like the, a, a sports team's playbook, you know, you know, or, a, or a chalkboard halfway through the game, all those X's and O's and dotted lines and scribbles. And the church is like the team of athletes through whom you see it get done. The wisdom is no longer just like a playbook or a chalkboard. It's, it's no longer just like an idea out there or, or a strategy out there. No, it's actually like coordinated. <laughs> it's a captivating, breathtaking, execute. You can see it. It's, it's made manifest. You can see it. That's what Paul is saying here about the church. The manifold wisdom of God gets put on display. It gets embodied in like a musical. It gets executed by like a sports team. It's the church that does it. He, he uses actually a really uncommon word right here uh, for wisdom. Uh, well, he uses the common word for wisdom, Sophia, if you didn't know. Um, but the word manifold right there is a really unusual word in, uh, in ancient Greek. It's the word polupoikilos, polupoikilos. It's a fairly rare, like, compound word. It's like, you know what a compound word is. It's when you, like, you beehive, you cram two words together, and suddenly you've got a word. It's smooshing the word poikilos, which is just the common word for many-colored. And so, like, when you were a kid and you, ha- you opened that 
crayon box that was 120 anyone remember these the 120 count crayon box that you open up and you see the breathtaking amount of crayons there all the manifold colors of crayons and it's got the crayon sharpener built into the back yes it was like you were having a good day that's the word poikilos it's many Many different colors is what the word literally means. But then Paul takes the word poikilos and he smooshes another word on, onto the front of it. Paulus, palu poikilos, it's uh, the word many. It's just a common word, many. And so the wisdom of God is not just poikilos, it's palu poikilos. It's many, many colors. The way that this word, when it does occur, not just in the Bible but in other like ancient sources, it's... Um, this word is talking about something, um, something bigger than just like quantity. It's not just more crayons in the box, if that makes sense. It's not making a million count crayon box with Willy Wonka's crayon factory like stuck onto the back of it or something. It's not more quantity. It's deeper, more complex quality is actually the way this word gets used. And so polypoikilos actually gets used to describe like complex emotions is the way it can get used. It can get used to like uh, in-depth reasoning, that chalkboard for a sports team, like, okay, strategy, in-depth reasoning. Um, Or if we want to stick with our color metaphor for just a second, this word gets used frequently to describe a veil, or a tapestry a lot of times, where colors are woven intricately, carefully together. It's like, um, you can go ahead, it's like the back side, this is actually literally two sides of the same uh, tapestry. It's like the back side of the tapestry, you see just like a mess. It's like all these varieties and shades of colors, they're just like intricately like working together. And man, it's just this mess. But then if you go to the other side of it, if you can get to the other side of it, there's like a single cohesive picture that you can see. Paul is saying here, in Ephesians 3, he's saying that, like a tapestry, that is the kind of wisdom that the church puts on display, and then the end of the verse says, to any and all things in the universe out there, any non-human spiritual powers, something we could talk about later, that's what Paul's saying here in this verse, the entire universe and everything in it, human, non-human, Everybody can see the creator's ultimate design, his big picture strategy, his plans in the church. That is why the church exists, according to Paul, to make known the wisdom of God to everything and everyone in the universe. Okay. Well, if you're like me, that's great. That's great, Paul. That's a, well, what, that sounds important, but it's still a little fuzzy. It's still like a little abstract. And so um, let's try to make it clear. Uh, let's pull Paul uh, a chair up to my table at Starbucks. Let's time travel and set him a chair right here with me and Ryan Smothers at Starbucks. Um, if he were sitting across the table from 
from us 15 years ago, he might say something like this to us. He might say that the church exists to do what isolated Christians cannot. The church exists to do what isolated Christians cannot. He would hear us like wrestling with the question, the big questions of the, of the world. Wouldn't Christianity be better without the church? <laughs> It like wouldn't make any sense to him. He, he would hear us be skeptical of the church, uh, me obsessing over me and Jesus, and he would just shake his head, and he'd be like, what are you talking about? I'm glad, I'm glad that you, Brett, care about God's, about Israel's God and about Israel's Messiah, but if you think that that Messiah, that Christ, lived and died and rose again to give you an ongoing, privatized, isolated spiritual experience, you have not been reading Israel's scriptures or any part of my letters very carefully. The church is the point. It's the point. That's why it can wound us so deeply is it's so important. In fact, The church exists to do what you, Brett, as an individual Christian, are literally unable to do. What do you mean, I reply to Paul, sipping on my mocha latte that I used to drink like an idiot. (laughs) I read the Bible. I pray, I sing worship songs in the car, I listen to podcasts and interesting talks, I think deep thoughts about God, I've even started caring for the poor, I've started engaging with, you know, my local community. Name one thing that the church can do that I, as a private, by myself, isolated Christian, me and Jesus, name one thing that I cannot do. Well, Paul replies, well, Brett, you can't, um, you can't have a debate. You can't have a disagreement. You can't have an argument. Exactly, exactly, Paul. You're making my point here. The church is riddled with difference. It's got all these different people in it, annoyances and disagreements and different personalities and just like differences in general. I think... You are making my point, Brett. The church is full of difference. It's full of differences. By yourself, Brett, you can't have a disagreement. You can't even have a conversation. You can't have patience. You can't have reconciliation. You can't extend forgiveness to someone. You can't receive forgiveness from someone. You can't inconvenience yourself. You can't sacrifice for someone else. You can't taste the joy of forgetting yourself when you're only by yourself. You can't cry on someone else's shoulder. You can't Take somebody else's burden and put it on your shoulder. You want to know what you can't do alone, Brett? I can say it in one word. You can't love alone. You can't love in isolation. And so the church exists to do what isolated Christians cannot. 
I cannot love alone. Can't happen. I can't happen. Love, by definition, requires difference. Love, by definition, requires two different persons, a lover and a beloved, someone else, something else that is being loved. If love is what we are after, if love is what you are after, if love is what you want to experience, if, if love, oh, by God's grace, if love is what you want to become, if you want to reflect, God's love and who he is, well, we cannot, by definition, we cannot do that alone. This is what Paul is talking about right? when he talks about the manifold wisdom of God. In fact, don't take my word for it. Uh, Ephesians 2, if you want to uh, jump back uh, right before this in Ephesians 2, he's talking about this. This is um, the way he ends chapter 2, right before what we read in chapter 3. He said, Christ is our, the Messiah, the anointed one. Christ is our peace. He made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. With his body, he broke down the barrier of hatred that divided us. He canceled the detailed rules of the law so that he could create one new person out of the two groups making peace. He reconciled them both as one body to God by the cross, which ended the hostility to God. When he came, when Jesus came, he announced the good news of peace to you who were far away from God and to the Jewish people, to those who were, had always been near to God. We both have access to the Father through Christ by one Spirit. So now you are no longer strangers and aliens to each other or to, the, or to the love of God. Rather, you are fellow citizens with God's people and you belong to God's household. As God's household, you are built on the, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building is joined together in him and it grows into a temple that is dedicated to the Lord. Christ is building you into a place where God lives through the Spirit. As he starts and he says, Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, in the mystery of God becoming flesh, of God becoming one of us, and then what he did particularly on the cross, it says in verse 14, he himself is our peace. And when I was a teenager, all this, all the rest of the stuff around that verse felt really clunky because I really wanted Paul, maybe this is like you and the way you've always read the verse, um, I really wanted Paul to be talking about inner peace. 
Ah, I just feel so calm and relaxed because Christ himself is our peace. And I was, I really wanted the verse to be about that. And I was really disappointed um, as I read around it that it didn't, it seemed like Paul was talking, he is, talking about Jews and Gentiles more than tranquility and Zen, you know. It's, it's, it's incredibly intricate what he's saying right here. It's okay that you didn't catch all of it. (laughs) People study this their entire lives. He's making a very compact statement here in chapter two, like verbal origami or something like that. But the point is clear enough. In the life of Jesus, and particularly verse um, 16, in his death on the cross, God has broken down like the most fundamental barrier between races and cultures and difference in the first century, Jews and Gentiles. The ancient world recognized, all of the Mediterranean world recognized, Jews were this unusual, different, separate kind of people. And Jewish writers of the time, they could describe the world as having two races, us and the Jewish people, and the Gentiles, the the nations out there, anyone who wasn't Jewish. But Paul is saying, the wisdom of God does not want a divided world. The wisdom of God does not want a divided world. The wisdom of God desires a world of love. And so verse 15 right here, it says that he has made one new person, like Literally, one new anthropos, one new human being out of two difference. God has loved something new into existence, a new humanity. The two most different, incompatible, frequently hating and hostile groups have been brought together in a new humanity. That's what Paul is saying. We all come to the broken body of Jesus, and eventually we discover that all of our brokenness has been overcome by love. And that includes the brokenness not just within us, but the brokenness between us between us, the brokenness of human relationships. We are, verse 16, we are reconciled with God, we're called one body, one united temple is where he goes with the argument. God himself dwells, not just in us, but like in us, among us, we together. And within, wouldn't you know it, if you survey ancient letters, within one century of Paul writing this ancient letter, you actually have people literally describing the church as a third race. It's like a third, they're Jews, and then there are non-Jews, and then there is a third race of people, those, that strange new group of people, the church, those people that are like marked by confidence that God loves them. And because they are loved by God, they overflow with love for others, for the sick, 
and for the stranger, and they care for widows, and they, they're adopting orphans or abandoned children into their midst. They're loving one another regardless of like social status or gender or race. That is the manifold wisdom of God being put on display. And yes, of course, the history of the church is like littered with examples of like the church failing to perform the musical. I got you there. All of us we could go around. We could make a big circle. <laughs> like, hi, my name's Brett. I've been wounded by the church. Hi, Brett. Um, we've all experienced the pain of people, of the church, not implementing the playbook of love well. I've, I've experienced it uh, several years ago. In a church, betrayal, wounding, accusation, knife in the back. I've ex- We could share the stories, couldn't we? But that's not a reason to tear up the playbook. That's not a reason to say, we're not going to perform the musical. It's no reason to abandon the church. The church is where we practice what we cannot do in isolation. The church is where we practice love. The early church began that. They were called like a third race. They stood out so much. The manifold wisdom of God was being put on display, but we can still see it today. We can look at Lorelai. We could look at, I know, calling you out. We can look at Lorelai or Rachel isn't here, but we can look at them, them, them in and among us, giving of themselves through food cooking for people, not asking for any attention. She's mortified that I even brought her up and all of a sudden I called her out here. But they're serving midweek at a food pantry here in Manitou. We can see they're doing something that they could not do by themselves. They're loving. Uh, The Hawkersmiths, are they in the room? Wherever, they're around. They're, they, (laughs) just serving, yeah, that's right. Tim and Meredith. Not only are they bringing children into their home, baby Jason, foster parenting, they're also like taking care of logistics of a fire-damaged home a month ago of another family in our community. They're, that is amazing. You can't, that, that's love. And you can't do that by yourself. You have to be embedded within a community. New life as the seven congregations that we are is strategically caring for people in the Pikes Peak region, for the vulnerable, for the hurting, bringing single moms off the street, loving them back into society, caring for people, taking care of, like, eight years ago, when my life fell apart, like, totally unraveled, I saw my church, Mosaic Birmingham, surround me, and walk with me. And for a couple of weeks, my pastor literally housed me. They loved me back to life. My, my, I get it. We could go around a circle. My life has been wounded by the church, yes. But my life has also been saved by the church. And we should be able to go around the circle and share those stories too. God doesn't want isolated brains thinking right things about him. God wants fully engaged, fully alive people loving like him. 
That's, that's what the church does. You can be an isolated brain thinking all the right things about God, but that doesn't allow you to actually be fully engaged and fully alive and loving like him. The end game of God's wisdom is not simply individual Christians' lives being put back together and then leaving you isolated. The end game is what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. It's new humanity together, living together. in lo- The end game is love. Love. God, by his spirit, is drawing us into like the most monumental, breathtaking journey of joining in the dance of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in loving this world back to life. The goal isn't a bunch of isolated people like thinking similar thoughts to each other, like, like crayons, neatly but separate in a nice little pack. No, it's the tapestry. It's like the crazy number of threads. Just, it looks like a mess. They're just going everywhere. and It doesn't look like it's forming any kind of cohesive whole. But then until you can get on the other side of it, until you can get on the and then you see like this single picture, a united temple, a loving new humanity, an undivided body, A humanity learning to reflect the image of God. And when we start loving and giving and serving others, really what we're seeing, we're starting to look like God. I've alluded to it, but we're starting to look like God who is himself a community of love. If you didn't know, that's uniquely Christian understanding of who God is. The heart of the universe pumping energy and love and reality into all of us. The divine heart of the universe is a dance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the mysterious Christian confession of Trinity, that God himself, the living pulse of the universe, is relationship, is community. And if God himself is relationship, if God himself at his heart is community, we are way off course if we think that we don't need to be grafted into relationship, if we don't need community. What we're trying to say this morning is this, isolated spirituality is not Christian spirituality. And isolated humanity is not truest humanity. God loves you. He loves me too much to leave us alone, to leave us isolated. I'm an introvert. (laughs) Ask my, my family. I like me some alone time, but I would not, and I I would not like me an alone life. I would not. Any introvert in the room could tell you. It's not that I, don't, that I don't need people or like people or want people. I desperately do. 
I'm saying I'm so grateful that for a God that continues to draw me into deeper connection and deeper concern and deeper vulnerability and deeper friendship with those around me. And he does that through the church. That's the church, my friends. All of the writings of the New Testament, they never present us, despite the way a lot of us grew up, they never present us with a privatized, atomized, isolated faith. As true as it is that God, that Jesus cares for me and relates to me individually and personally, <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> Glorious hope. Good news. God cares for me. As true as that is, the early church did not describe salvation, full rescue, did not describe it as having a personal relationship with Jesus or asking Jesus into my heart. That's not the way the early church described it. That's the way some influential parts of Christianity started describing it in the mid-20th century with big revivals. But that's not the way the Bible talks about it. And, and maybe they're helpful phrases. Maybe they are in as much as they call us to ask us, do you really, truly, as an individual, care and trust God? But what we mean by those phrases... Just me and Jesus is what we really mean by those phrases a lot of times. And that's, that would be completely unrecognizable, foreign, alien to the earliest church. The question that I was asking years ago in Starbucks grows out of the soil of me and Jesus. Having a, me just thinking it's about my personal relationship and asking him into my heart. But that question wouldn't Christianity be better without the church would make zero sense to the early church. In Scripture, from, from Ephesians to Exodus, salvation looks like being grafted into God's diverse, earthy, complicated community of love. The Scriptures insist that God is saving the world and he's doing it through a particular people. And the question that scripture is always asking us is, do you want to be a part of that people? Like with your entire life, to throw yourself into those, to that people. Will you allow the spirit of God to woo you into this community, to include you, to graft you into this group of people? The the emphasis is less on you inviting Jesus into your heart and more on Jesus is inviting you into his people. I'll say that again. The emphasis of scripture is less on you inviting Jesus into your heart and more on Jesus is inviting you into his people. We could say it this way as we come to the table. Fullness of salvation is about being grafted into love. And love requires community. Fullness of salvation is about us and Jesus. Fullness of salvation is about us and Jesus. Because only us together can practice love. Us. And the people that we think we could never get along with. Us and those who like think so differently than us and like vote differently than us. 
us and the people who, who, who wave a different flag than us. Only us together can fully reflect the image of God who is relationship, loving. So you're invited to love and serve and give and forgive and be forgiven to to know and be known. God, may we um, repent of the ways that we consider ourselves like self-sufficient. May we reject the lie that is self-centered isolation, especially in our spiritual lives. Like, may we believe the good news that you love us too much to leave us alone. May we say yes to the heart of the universe, to you, the divine relationship, the divine dance of Father, Son, and Spirit. And may we find fullness of life in the family that you are making. We ask in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.